Coffee, Cows, and Crops is produced by the Peace Country Beef and Forage Association and hosted by Extension Coordinator Johanna Murray. On this podcast, we discuss management practices and research results with scientists, ranchers, researchers, and farmers. We strive to share innovative information and farming practices supported by sound science and practical wisdom. So grab a cup of coffee and let's get learning. everybody. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Coffee, Cows, and Crops. Uh, today I'm having a chat with Dr. Dana Goldsmith, a pathologist from the University of Calgary who specializes in wildlife pathology. So thanks for coming on. Can you give us a bit of a background on how you got into wildlife pathology as a field? Yeah, and I might give you guys a bit of an intro to what pathology is because I'm sure there are people out there who don't know. That'd be good. Um, pathology is basically, by definition, it's the study of disease. Um, in veterinary medicine, we divide pathology into kind of two categories. One is clinical pathology, the other is anatomic pathology. And so clinical pathology would be um, the people who look at the blood samples that you guys might be out taking or at urine samples. So fluid samples, um, and then also cells. So if you had like a dog, for instance, with a mass and they did what's called an aspirate on it, um, those would go to a clinical pathologist to look at. And then what I am is an anatomic pathologist. Um, so I look more at tissues from animals. So my job um, kind of has two big parts to it. One is looking at biopsies taken from animals. So usually more small animals like dogs and cats when they get tumors and you take those for surgery and they get taken off, they come to me to diagnose what they are. And then also to do necropsies on animals that die. So necropsy is more or less the same thing as an autopsy, just a different word for veterinarian species versus humans. Um, but yeah, that's kind of my job in a nutshell. So when I started in uh, vet school, I knew that I wanted to do something to do with wildlife, but I didn't really know what. Um, had no idea what pathology was. Had no desire at that time to work with dead animals instead of live animals. Um, but kind of throughout my year, starting in my, the summer of my second year, I, um, did a project looking at parasites in raccoons in Alberta. And I worked with one of our pathologists at the time here, um, and realized that I really like doing necropsies on animals. And I, um, found that the pathologists who worked here were all really happy in their jobs and really liked what they were doing. were super interested in, in their stuff every day and very enthusiastic. So, um, I kind of started leading that way and then decided to apply for um, a residency after vet school was done and ended up doing a residency down in California. Cool. So whenever you start to talk about wildlife disease or biosecurity up here, especially, um, it never takes long for leptospirosis to come up, um, especially with our community pastures and our big elk population, and that sort of stuff. Um, it's a big deal. So can you tell me a bit more about, about lepto and kind of what it is as a disease? Yeah, so lepto is the short form of leptospirosis, um, which is a bacterial pathogen that can infect pretty much every mammal species. Um, so the full name is leptospirosis enterogans. Um, and then there's a bunch of different types of that bacteria which we usually refer to as serovars or serotypes. Um, the two common ones you're gonna hear about in cattle are gonna be one called Harjo and one called Pomona. 
And so the different types of these bacteria, um, they will all have what we call a maintenance host. So it's a species that they prefer to be in. So hardjo, for example, um, the maintenance host for that is cattle, which is why it's the most common species we see in cattle. Um, Pomona can ha actually has two maintenance hosts. So cattle can be maintenance hosts for that. Um, and then so can pigs. So anytime those bacteria infect a species that is not their maintenance host, um, it's referred to as an incidental host. And when they do that, the disease tends to be a lot more severe in those, inter in, in those incidental hosts versus um, the maintenance hosts. Oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. It's a complicated one. Yeah. So um, with that in mind, how does it, um, how, how does lepto spread and, you know, what, what animals can carry and are common carriers and transmitters of those two cattle serotypes? Yeah, so lepto can infect literally any species of mammal, including people, um, which is one of the reasons why we worry about, and any of those species can affect any other species. Um, the way that it's transmitted is flu through um, fluids, primarily through urine is the most common way. Um, it can also be transmitted through uh, reproduction, so through like placental fluids associated with birth. Um, and what happens is those bacteria, so they're shed in the urine or other fluids, and then they can get into an animal's body either through mucous membranes, so things like gums or through your eyes, um, or they can get in through cuts in your skin. If you have any type of breach in the skin, then they can get in that way. So um, like within a herd of cattle, when you have an animal peeing on like bedding or substrate, another animal could get it just by coming into contact with that bedding um, or feed that's been contaminated by urine or sometimes water sources we think can act as an important um, source if there's uh, urine that's contaminating those water sources. Right, that makes sense. So um, obviously shared water sources and uh, winter feed that's not stored properly could be risk factors, but what's the, um, has, has there been a case increase or is there sort of a, what's the prevalence of lepto in North America and in, I guess, Alberta specifically? So there hasn't been a ton of good work necessarily done to look at that. Um, across the world that they've done, they've done a few big studies through kind of across North America, mostly with data coming from the US. Um, and they find levels of leptospirosis to be higher, usually actually in urban settings where there's a lot of people, um, and then also in places where there's a lot of livestock. So there tends to be a correlation there. Um, a lot of the cases where people or animals are getting lepto um, from wildlife, it's actually often related to rodent species, especially rats. So that's mm -hmm. probably why um, urban centers, maybe not within Alberta, but in other places, um, have higher rates of lepto. The other factor to think about is that lepto, um, it can persist for quite a while in the environment, but only kind of stays alive within a certain temperature range. So when it gets too cold, um, the bacteria is gonna die, or if it gets too hot, it's gonna die. So we're actually kind of lucky with our, our cold winters because it helps to keep um, the amount of that bacteria in the environment lower. Uh, but the reason why it still persists is that, especially within the maintenance host for that species, the bacteria can stay alive for a long time within the kidneys of the animal and continue to be shed in the urine. 
um, without necessarily making those animals sick. So you won't necessarily know they have it, but they're still shedding the bacteria and infecting other members of their cohort or other species potentially. Right. Um, Lepto also really likes wet environments, which makes sense with the whole water contamination thing. So it won't do well um, in really dry conditions. So usually we're more likely to see it in the spring or in the fall when things are a little bit more wet, not so much in the summer or in the winter. Gotcha. So the symptom of lepto that we talk about kind of the most is the abortions, obviously, because that's the big economic loss. Um, but what other symptoms or signs uh, do you see with lepto? So it's going to depend a lot on whether um, it's a maintenance host or an incidental host. So if you're a maintenance host and you get infected by your species of lepto um, that's kind of adapted to you, you're usually not going to get that sick. Um, and you're going to usually carry that bacteria for potentially a long period of time. So those animals can have abortions for sure. Um, and they can be kind of all over the place in the um, pregnancy period. So they can be midterm or late term abortions. They usually won't happen with like a, a abortion storm. So they'll be kind of one off animals that are aborting. Um, they might get a fever, like a low grade fever or something like that, but they're not going to die from it and they're not going to get that sick. Um, the ones that are incidental hosts that are getting a species of lepto or a type of lepto that they're not used to are going to get a lot sicker. Um, and those are the ones that I tend to see on the necropsy floor. Not so much, I actually haven't had a single case um, in the last year here in Alberta, but down in California, we saw a lot more. Um, and in those animals, kind of the classic things that you will see is they'll start um, peeing blood because they are having red urine. It's not really completely blood, but um, they're having a process that we call um, like red blood cell lysis. So their red blood cells are starting to break down and the, some of the pigment from those blood cells gets excreted in the urine. So they'll, they'll have red urine and then they'll also get um, icterus or jaundice. So they're, if you looked at their gums um, or their, when you're doing necropsy, all of their fat tissues and things will be like bright, bright, bright yellow. And that's a similar, it's related again to the, those blood cells breaking down. Um, so those two things are probably the most obvious features and you can see those um, in your animals when they're still alive potentially, right? So they should be hopefully useful for you guys. Um, and then those animals, if they're acutely infected like that, they will often die from that condition. And it's actually um, probably related to the, to the blood cell loss. And then also it targets their kidneys. So they'll actually get um, kidney failure because of the infection. And those animals can also have abortions, but in those cases, you'll be more likely to see abortion storms happening. So many animals affected, or at least a group of animals affected all kind of around the same time. Um, so how, how do you get, uh, lepto diagnosed? And then once you know, once an animal does have it, is there a treatment or, uh, do they develop immunity to it or will they catch it again? So diagnosis of lepto is actually surprisingly difficult, both, um, from the clinical perspective. And even, even on my side, even when I have an animal that comes in and has died from lepto, and it has kind of all of these classic signs, it can actually be pretty tough to prove it. Um, so we often do a variety of different types of tests. So the ones that are available, there's a blood test that's available um, where you draw blood and you look at titer levels, so antibody levels to the different types of lepto. 
Um, and that one can be really useful because it will not only tell you that, yes, they have antibodies to, to lepto, but it'll actually tell you they have antibodies to this specific species, which will be very helpful if you're trying to figure out, for example, where it's coming from. Um, the problem with that, though, is they, there can be some cross-reaction between the antibodies. So sometimes you'll have antibodies to a species that they don't necessarily have. And then also, if it's uh, the maintenance host that's being affected, they actually don't get a huge immune response to it. Again, they're kind of adapted to that bacteria. So their titers won't necessarily go up that high, even with infection. Other things that can kind of mess up that test too, if you're, if you're vaccinating against lepto, the vaccine actually works by stimulating the immune system to make antibodies. So right. you're gonna have antibodies from the vaccine. So you have to be able to tell um, what is a vaccine antibody versus what is an actual infection associated antibody. Um, so that's one way of testing. The other ways that are available, we have a test that's called um, fluorescence antibody testing. And I think you can do that on both. I do it obviously on tissues from them during the postmortem time. Um, but you can also do that on urine and potentially on blood, but definitely on urine. Um, and then there's also a PCR test that we use that you can be done on urine as well as on tissues. And for me, um, ideally, I actually try to run all three of those tests when I can, because some animals will come positive on one of them. Some of them will be positive on all three. Some of them will be positive on two, even within like the same outbreak in the same herd. So it can be oh, wow. pretty tricky. Um, yeah. yeah, there's another part to your question. Uh, oh, I was wondering if there if there's a treatment or if um, they'll catch it again, that sort of stuff. Yeah, so there it is a bacterial infection, so you can treat it with antibiotics. Um, you'll have to talk to your clinical veterinarian to find out which ones work best in different scenarios, but you can it can be treated for sure. Um, in terms of immunity, they will be protected for a while after they've been infected because they'll have those antibodies, but those antibodies are going to go away over time. Um, so they can potentially be infected again. The younger animals that haven't been exposed before are the ones that will usually get the sickest. So with those acute um, incidental host infections, those tend to be in younger animals, but they could happen in older animals if they haven't been exposed to it before. Um, so reinfection is definitely possible with Right. And once you know you have lepto in your herd, how do you sort of deal with that and, um, yeah, deal with kind of the ongoing infections and that sort of stuff? Because it sounds yeah. like it can stay there for quite a, quite a long time. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those bacteria that's kind of present in the environment. So um, you're not going to necessarily be able to totally get rid of it. Uh, if you have a herd that is actually infected and you've proven that, um, again, you can treat with antibiotics. And I think often what they'll do is a combination of treating with antibiotics and then also vaccinating them. Um, so the lepto vaccines are fairly good. Down in California, they have much more of a problem with lepto than we do in the dairies. Um, and so they vaccinate routinely all the time. Um, depending on the situation you're in, I think it's like a once or twice a year vaccine. Um, and it's usually given with, it's like an abortive vaccine. So it's given with a bunch of other agents as well. And your vaccine, they actually have to put um, the specific strains of concern in there. So you have to be, you have to have multiple different strains of bacteria in those vaccines to protect you against the ones in your area, but they are fairly effective. Okay. And um, since the biggest 
reason we talk about lepto up here is is the wildlife. Um, is there uh, a management thing going on with with wildlife and lepto, or is it is it one of those things that they actually do manage and police in in deer and elk herds or? So it's not it's not something that um, is managed. It's actually on on from my perspective, it's not something that we worry about too much because it's kind of in the background. It's going on, um, and in Alberta, at least right now, as far as I know, there isn't. We haven't done enough work to say that there's um, good evidence that we're having a problem because of the and wildlife. Mm. Um, so in general, wildlife species that tend to carry the lepto that are likely to infect wildlife or likely to infect livestock and people um, are more animals like rodents, rats in particular, um, skunks, and then raccoons. So of those three species, we have probably some rats in Alberta and definitely some raccoons, but we have a lot of skunks. So I think mm -hmm. if, if a species of wildlife was causing a lepto problem, um, I'd be looking there first. Most of the surveys that have been done in the U.S. looking at um, lepto populations in wildlife have not actually found a lot of leptosporosis in deer and elk. Um, it's not to say that it's not a possibility here. We just haven't looked for it to prove that they're um, the cause of the problem. I think one of the ways that we can go that we could go ahead and kind of try to see if there if the wildlife is causing a lepto problem in the cattle population would be to actually um, isolate the lepto that's causing the abortions and show what um, serotype it is. Because if you, if you were to do that and you find out that um, most of the abor abortions are being caused by harjo, which is the lepto that's adapted to cattle, then you really couldn't say that that's a wildlife problem right. um, because that bacteria is maintained by cattle. So it's much more likely to be um, a problem within the herd where the cattle are carrying it. They may be not getting sick with it. They're maintenance host, so they're carrying it for a long period of time. They're shedding it, making high levels in the environment and causing these outbreaks of abortion. Um, yeah. That makes sense. Um, I guess additional, additional to that, um, you said earlier, um, leptozoonotic, it can be transmitted to anything that's a mammal. Um, are there some ways to kind of prevent transmission to humans and to other animals from your cattle herd once you know it's there? Yeah, for sure. So um, pretty much your basic bios good biosecurity protocols are going to keep you safe. Um, I think we've all learned a lot about biosecurity and biosafety thanks to uh, COVID. So similar things are going to help you. In this case, the disease is transmitted by fluids. So you have to find ways of preventing those fluids from contacting either um, your mucous membranes, like your mouth and your eyes, um, or your skin. So wearing gloves, for example, when you're dealing with, like if you were cleaning out bedding from an area that's potentially contaminated with urine, um, or you're working with an animal wearing gloves, wearing safety goggles, or one of those face shields would be really good to prevent things like splashes from getting into your eyes or mouth. Um, in general, I would say like it's, it doesn't happen that often for how much lepto is out in the environment. And again, like all species can do it. So I wouldn't be particularly concerned. Um, I would just use normal good biosecurity protocols. That makes sense. And um, now that we've talked kind of about all of that and, and the biosecurity a little bit, um, and I guess we have kind of talked about the effective 
the efficacy of the vaccines and that sort of thing. Um, can other animals be vaccinated, uh, like dogs? Can humans be vaccinated for it? So I'm, I'm not sure about humans. There may be a vaccine out there that I don't know about, but dogs, you can definitely vaccinate against lepto. And in places where lepto is said to be endemic, so where they see more cases of lepto, especially in the US, um, I think people who have outdoor dogs will get them regularly vaccinated. Um, so if you are having a lepto problem and you, you know that's what it is, you could definitely request a vaccine for your dog, which would help protect your dog um, and also protect you. And maybe if, if the lepto is coming from your dog and going to your cattle, that would be a helpful thing too. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think there's a, horses will see occasional problems with lepto, but as far as I know, there isn't a horse vaccine available. What are um, some of the the implications, I guess, of lepto in Alberta, since we don't have a lot of research that's been done, um, what are kind of some of the, some of the things producers can do to, um, to guard against it and to um, report it and that sort of thing. If, if they think it's lepto, uh, what are kind of the steps to get that identified and that sort of thing? Yeah. So now you're, now you're right up my alley. So the first thing to do, like now that everybody is suspicious that there's some sort of lepto problem going on is you really do have to prove it. Um, and we've already talked about how tough that can be. So, so calling it lepto just because you're having abortions and, and somebody's mentioned lepto in, in a farm next door kind of isn't enough. So you really do need to start submitting some samples. Um, so ideally in my world, you'd actually submit um, full aborted fetuses for diagnostics. So we run um, on most abortion cases that we get, we run a diagnostic panel either through Saskatoon or through Guelph. And both of those panels include lepto PCR in them. Um, so that's a pretty quick way to rule it in or out. Um, if you can't get a whole fetus down to it, you can actually have your vet do their own, what we call a field necropsy. Um, out there and then they collect tissues for us, hopefully both formal and fixed and then frozen tissues um, because the panel gets done only on frozen tissues. So you need to make sure they collect frozen tissues. Um, the most important tissue for lepto is gonna be the kidney. So as long as they take a piece of kidney and they freeze it, you can actually send that out to the lab for testing for lepto. Um, as I mentioned before, those tests are, none of them are perfect. So having more ways of testing than one is, is preferable. Um, so again, if you're thinking you're, you're having a problem, you can actually do some blood testing on the live animals as well, which I would recommend. Uh, it's a good idea with that blood test to test both animals that are aborting as well as ones that aren't aborting. So you can kind of compare um, the levels of the titers to show what you should see is higher titers in the affected animals that are aborting and lower titers in the unaffected ones. So you're kind of looking for what the background level of lepto is. Um, the other thing to do if you're gonna go through the time and effort to take the blood samples is I recommend doing two sets of blood samples. So you take one kind of when the problem is happening um, and then you take one, which we call a convalescent sample, which was taken like seven to 10 days after that because you want to see that there's a change in those antibodies over time to prove that there was an infection and now it's going away. So you should see kind of a spike in those antibodies and then a decrease over time to help prove that it was the cause of the problem. Producers can submit uh, those samples through their, their vet, right? That's how they submit those samples? Yeah, exactly. 
So Jenna and I both work um, at a lab that's called the Diagnostic Services Unit, the DSU, which is run through the vet school in Calgary. So we're part of the vet school. Um, and so what you can do is if you talk to your vet and you want to test for lepto, um, your vet can collect the appropriate samples and then he can submit the, he or she can submit them to us down here in Calgary. Um, and we can do the testing for you. Awesome. And I guess, um... While I have you, are there other um, are there other wildlife diseases and uh, that sort of thing that you think producers should be talking about more um, besides stuff like lepto? Um, I think we kind of have to just inc- like continue to do surveillance. There aren't any wildlife diseases that I think are currently causing um, a big problem with our production systems. Um, but there's always the potential for something nasty to pop up. And if we're not looking for it, we're not going to find it until there's a problem, right? So um, there's other diseases that can come from wildlife that do cause abortion, but there's plenty of diseases that come from, spread from cow to cow that cause abortion too. And those are still more likely as well as diseases that are not even necessarily infectious diseases, but management um, problems, like things like nutrition that might not be balanced appropriately that can lead to abortion problems. Um, all sorts of diseases have the ability to pass between livestock and wildlife. One of the other ones that I saw, again, more down in California, but that we have here as well, is one called Neospora, which is a, a protozoal parasite that can pass um, specifically usually from canids, so from coyotes, wolves, and dogs can pass to cattle and cause abortions. And that's another one that we test for regularly, and we can rule that one in or out um, by sending us samples. So there's all, there's, there's a lot of them. (laughs) I guess that makes sense. For these wildlife diseases and that sort of thing, um, do you want to expand a little bit on, on kind of the biosecurity practices side of things? Um, Just how to control and some management measures people could put in place to kind of limit that, that transmission of, of disease. Yeah. So, I mean, for any disease, keeping, keeping the wildlife separate from your animals is ideal. Um, So having things like wildlife fences that actually prevent them from getting in, things like keeping your feed and water sources away from them. So making sure your feed is appropriately stored so that you're not getting wildlife in there, um, either eating it or defecating, pooping or peeing in your feed sources. Um, Same with the water, right? Like using water sources that aren't potentially not just dugouts, but water troughs that are raised off the ground, less likely to be contaminated by urine and things like that. Like I understand it's always a balance um, between like practicality and safety, but those are some things that can for sure help. Um, And same with even like your, your own, not just wildlife, but your own pets. So keeping different species separate, making sure um, your animals are vaccinated and dewormed regularly to prevent the spread um, from animal to animal. And also, uh, you're a really good way of spreading disease between your animals too. So making sure your own kind of biosafety, biosecurity protocol is good so that you're not um, acting as a fomite and transmitting disease between your animals. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, is there anything I've missed that you think we should mention before we... Uh... Um, let me see if I had anything else I wanted to talk about. I mean, I think that's the, um, the biggest thing. And for me, like my biggest message to you guys is that, um, is to try and do some more diagnostics on these cases and try to figure out whether or not 
lepto is truly your problem. Um, just because we don't, we don't see it that often, it doesn't mean it's not there. Um, it could be that we're just not looking for it or we're not doing good surveillance on the wildlife side, which is still kind of an expanding area. Um, on that note, in addition to um, you guys being able to submit samples from your animals for testing. Um, we also run wildlife diagnostic down, diagnostics down here too through the group called CWHC, the Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative. Um, so when you, if you have, you know, something unusual that happens, like you, you have an animal, a wild animal that's acting oddly and dies, or you have an, some sort of die off of wildlife on your property, um, you can, that you're worried about potentially a disease infecting your livestock, you're definitely welcome to also submit um, those cases to us as well. Right. The upshot of it seems to be do more diagnosis and go to the UFC because they've got resources. <laughs> and I mean, thanks to our new, the new subsidy program, things are hopefully going to be a lot more affordable, um, at least with the production animal side of things. Awesome. Um, I guess before we sign off, are there any uh, resources or anything you want to plug? Um, I'll drop them down in the description if you got anything. Uh, I'd probably just our DSU website um, would be the number one. And then also the CWHC website has some good resources on there. I don't think they have anything specifically for lepto, um, but they talk about a lot of a lot of the important wildlife diseases that we are monitoring for all the time. They have good little summaries of those diseases on their website. Awesome. And what are those diseases really quick before we go? <laughs> There's a lot of them <laughs> the ones, um, that come to mind immediately are things like uh, influenza still, especially avian influenza, uh, West Nile virus in birds. Um, rabies is something that we're still always looking for. White nose syndrome in bats, which is more of a wildlife specific thing. Um, things like that. I mean, we're looking now, of course, for um, doing some coronavirus surveillance in our wildlife species, thanks to, to COVID, but not not a big concern here right now. Um, things like temper virus would be another one that has the potential to affect at least your, your pets more so than your livestock. Um, and then the big, some of the big bacterial diseases that we're always on the watch for, things like, like anthrax and brucella, which do exist in Alberta, um, more further up north even than you guys, uh, but something that you should be aware of and, and be on the lookout for. Oh, I guess. I guess the only other one um, that's on my mind, just because we had an outbreak here, I don't remember if it was, I think it was last fall of bovine tuberculosis that they'd found in, in wildlife. Yeah, so that's that's a big one that we deal with kind of on a, we deal with looking for it on a regular basis. Um, and it is a disease that can affect wildlife. And so anytime I get um, wildlife cases where they have uh, tuberculosis tends to cause these hard nodules that we call granulomas. Um, so when we see any lesions that look like that, then we, those animals become tuberculosis suspects and we send them out for testing. Uh, so again, anytime you see a lesion like that in your cattle um, or in a wildlife species, you should be submitting them for testing to look for it. Um, we haven't found an increased number of cases in wildlife mm -hmm. around here, we, but we're constantly looking. I have a case right now that's pending testing for it so cool all right well that was very educational for me i know <laughs> so 
<laughs> thank you very much for uh, coming on. I will put the links to uh, the DSU and um, the that one <laughs> down in the uh, description. And yeah, uh, thank you very much for doing this. And you're welcome. It's always nice. It's nicer to be there in person, but you know this is still kind of fun, and I think it's cool that you're making podcasts. So hopefully it goes well. And uh, yeah. So for everybody listening, uh, thank you for tuning in and uh, be sure to check out those links in the description and we will talk to you next time. Peace Country Beef and Forage Association is a research and extension group based out of Fairview, Alberta. Our mission is to help producers thrive in an agricultural system that is profitable, regenerative and attractive to future generations. To learn more about what we do and see the results of our research trials or our archive of newsletters and fact sheets, check out our website at peacecountrybeef.ca. Want to get in touch? Have a burning question or a topic suggestion? Send us a message on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Thanks for listening.